it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Years ago, H.G. Wells visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasies. And today, they're a reality. You're listening to The Afternoon Commute with John Adams and Chris Kendall. Uh, welcome to The Afternoon Commute with Chris Kendall and John Adams. Today is August 25th, 2015. If you would like to hear previous episodes of the Afternoon Commute, you can go to hoaxbusterscall.com and you'll find those posted up alongside the most recent episode of Chris's Monday Night Broadcast, the original Hoaxbusters Call. Also posted up there are various articles and videos that Chris finds interesting, as well as something called the Wall of Calls, uh, where over the years Chris has made phone calls to public officials and asked them very tough yet interesting questions that they don't seem to have simple answers for. It always makes for a very amusing conversation. And for any and all things Hoaxbusters, go to hoaxbusterscall.com. Before we go to our guest, just want to uh, thank everybody for listening. And if you're listening for the first time, uh, we welcome you to the audience. We noticed that we got a whole bunch of downloads on the last interview with Jason Colavito. And it appears that may be the most popular afternoon commute episode uh, to date and um, yeah it was a very interesting call to say the least uh, so make sure you go check that one out as well and uh, we want to say thanks to Jay Dyer over at jaysanalysis.com he wrote an article called The Age of Transition and Scientism Fraud and he provided a link to that episode in his article and I'm pretty sure that we garnered a lot of traffic from that, so uh, thanks to Jay over at jaysanalysis.com. Always uh, thought-provoking and interesting articles, interviews, and podcasts from him, and he's definitely one of my uh, daily stops when I am surfing the information superhighway, and I say that facetiously, of course. Uh, just one more thing I want to mention, and that is... Uh, I was recently interviewed on Marcus Allen's Truth in 7 Minutes podcast, so if you want to check that out, him and I have a discussion about the rising cost of eggs. And uh, Marcus is another one who has a lot of interesting stuff on his website as well, so check that out at truthin7minutes.com. Our guest today is a musician... And, uh, well, he's a, he's a lot of different things, but uh, namely, mainly a musician, and uh, he is uh, well-rounded. Uh, I think he's an accomplished guitar player, but he is a, an accomplished sitar player as well. I find that really interesting. Uh, it's a, for those who don't know what it is, it's a classical Indian uh, instrument. And uh, his name is Dr. Hans Utter, and he is joining us today to talk about 
music and uh, how it affects culture and probably a whole lot of uh, digressing will go on. So it'll be a very interesting conversation with him. And I found out about him uh, through uh, his series over at Gnostic Media Podcast with Jan Irvin, who has been a guest here before. And uh, it is a really great series, and everybody needs to uh, go check that out. So we welcome uh, Dr. Hans Utter to the afternoon commute. How are you doing today, Hans? I'm doing great, yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah, we are glad to have you with us. Um, could you briefly uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, just so uh, they can get an idea of your musical accomplishments? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been playing music since I was like four years old, you know, started playing violin. Then I was playing guitar, playing guitar professionally around 16, 17 years old. And then I went to music school and then I realized that I was making the same amount of money playing the gigs as I would with a music degree. So then I sort of, you know, moved in some different directions, um, kind of literature, philosophy, ended up in India um, and ended up staying in India for a number of years. I studied at Banaras Hindu University in Banaras, India, and then I also studied with Ustad Sujat Khan, who's a great sitarist. It's actually the longest instrumental lineage in India, um, and that's uh, Amdad Khan Garana. And I, so I spent a lot of time, I, you could say I kind of dropped out. I was an expatriate for a number of years and uh, would just come back and always feel strange coming back to America. but. Since then, I've uh, then I went into uh, academia, um, and I was doing that for a while. And uh, I still I still do some work. I'm not currently a member of the faculty of a university at this point, but I, I do you know presentations and stuff like that and lectures. And and uh, so then I with my PhD, I got to you know travel around. Um, also got to go to Central Asia. And uh, did some, I think, pretty interesting uh, research on a variety of different things. I was actually avoiding Indian classical music initially because that's such a huge topic because it's pretty much from the beginning of comparative musicology to ethnomusicology. It was kind of one of the major topics of research also because the East India Company, they also were quite interested in the music as well. And But then I ended up... Uh, going back and doing sitar uh, for my dissertation and but kind of a, I always like to have kind of a broad philosophical and cultural approach but as well as as much as uh, empirical grounding as possible so there's um, there's a lot of stuff out there there's like examples uh, you know feminist musicologists to talk about how Beethoven this particular melodic figure in the, the sonata is like a man oppressing a woman or something so you can get a little bit too subjective with musical analysis, <laughs> so I like to try to keep a uh, an empirical slant if I can. But yeah, that, that's kind of it. And I've done. I've got a, a record company. I've uh, you know I do uh, production and uh, recording, composition. And so that's pretty much uh, pretty much what I'm doing now. And uh, you know it's cool. I, I you know I didn't necessarily expect that I would be back. Um, you know, doing music uh, full time. But I guess a lot. You know, so I should be glad that I'm doing that as opposed to. Uh, you know, punching the time clock in the corporate machine or something. So I'm, uh, yeah. So and I, I, I can go in more detail, but I basically do a whole variety of stuff. Uh, but my main interest or my main focal point is primarily Indian classical music. 
Um, what, uh, before we get into the detrimental effects of manipulating culture and manipulating music through culture, uh, I thought it would be good to start off by touching on some of the positive things about, uh, you, you so eloquently put it in those talks with uh, Jan Irvin, about a lot of the positive effects that uh, classical and complex types of jazz have on the brain and the neural pathways and the brain plasticity. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that before we get into our uh, general conversation? Yeah, certainly. And that's, you know, that's a really big topic, you know, just in terms of, you know, music itself, right? You can't see it, right? And it's, so it's, it's, you know, sort of this ethereal art and, you know, it's just sound, but it has really can have a tremendous impact. And, and this has been recognized, you know, of course, Plato um, talks about that quite a bit. Um, he also talk, he also talks about the harmful aspects of music, but the idea um, you find in ancient Greece and China um, in India in a lot of places is that music is really the ideal means of developing a a functioning individual within a society, a fully sort of rounded individual with access to philosophical thought, but also, you know, also there's an you know, element also life should be, you know, an enjoyment of life as well. But that's that being said, the, you know, importance of music was stressed, uh, you know, through a traditional education. So, for example, uh, you know, growing up, to be sort of a respected member of society, well, especially women, they'd have to learn how to play and sing instruments, right? And so this was sort of a natural function of social uh, development. And uh, one of the, there's just so many ways that music operates on the mind. Um, and, and one of the things is that uh, spatial temporal reasoning. So our abilities to understand uh, and formulate both abstract and concrete categories in space and time uh, are greatly influenced by by music. Uh, and the interesting thing is because it does operate on so many different parts of the brain in that uh, they've done a lot of studies with, with musicians to find that they're using more of an analytical or left side of the brain, but also the right side of the brain, uh, that uh, emotional response uh, is very important. And, and so you know, everything from mathematics to uh, develop, development of linguistic abilities to development of the capacity for abstract thought uh, to also something that's certainly not very present in today's music culture or even from the you know, mid-20th century on or even early 20th century is that is uh, being able to um, acknowledge, experience emotions, but having a degree of control. So also kind of an impulse control, so to speak, not based on repression, but based on, you know, if you have, say, for example, you listen to a very intense piece of music like Wagner or something with these intense emotions, and if you're very relaxed, this actually develops your capacity, your emotional uh, experiential capacity. And, and another aspect is that, is that of entrainment. So you have Entrainment, that's a whole another big topic, but basically entrainment is sort of a, a law of the universe, one of those kind of mysterious things that you have two, two, vi two bodies that are uh, vibrating, they tend to phase lock, right? As long as one of the 
the um, the signals are strong enough. So this was discovered by a Dutch scientist, I think in the 1600s, who had two clocks. He put clocks next to each other. They'll start to sync. They'll start to phase lock. And that actually goes down to the molecular level. And so um, in trainment, um, one thing that happens with music is your actual, your brain processing, how every kind of uh, cognitive process is taking place can be entrained by music. So the whole your whole thinking processes will start to be influenced and start to sort of um, quote-unquote phase lock uh, with that. But, and, and, and there's uh, just a whole range uh, in terms of healing, uh, even, you know, blood pressure, um, people with um, even like Parkinson's, people with Alzheimer's can start to recover their memories through doing music, uh, helping people, you know, with various cognitive disorders, you know, that have aphasia or things like that. So there's, there's, there's really, um, is just a, a panoply of, uh, of benefits, uh, from music. But the, again, the interesting thing is that in that it's something that almost could be discounted, right? You have modern scientific age and then you just have these sort of, uh, sounds, right? I mean, it's, it's basically our definitions or our perception that creates, so to speak, the context for music, right? So you just have structured sounds, but then from those structured sounds, you get such a vast array of uh, experience. And that, that's because the sort of the perception of music works with also our uh, sort of, a, so to speak, narrative formulation of ourselves uh, as we relate to things and also you these abstract events um, can basically using like synesthesia right, you can have all different kinds of uh, experiences uh, from that so yeah I mean that, that, like I said that's a that's a whole um, whole can of worms but needless to say I mean there's um, you know many 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 studies about the uh, positive benefits of music um, and, and especially I mean I, I do think that within the you know the use of both the left and right brain so if you're you know Employing both your reason and your creativity, it gets that sized. You know, Plato said you really get kind of a very balanced, you get a very balanced, uh, well functioning individual. I don't know if you you guys noticed that uh, dealing with, you know, so called alternative uh, explanations of things or the conspiratorial view of history or whatever you want to call it or uh, just sort of out out of the box thinking and that that sort of thing a lot of uh musicians seem to uh pop up you know that's something that's on uh on different calls and stuff i've had that 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 subject comes up it's that oh yeah you're a musician too and uh yeah i i I play guitar myself and so does john and uh it's just something that is noted it's like well yeah you know why is there appear to be uh a kind of over representation of musicians and uh when you get into these uh arenas you know well it does it gives a you know it can help get a kind of a non-linear thinking you know because again you're dealing just with abstract sound you know you're playing an a major chord you know what that is but i mean it's still those are just you know frequencies that are arranged you know and so because of that, you know, if, you know, you, you know, use that creative aspect of music, it, it gives you, well, basically, um, fundamentally, it allows a lot of new neural pathways and also creates an easier way, right, to create 
um, to see things differently, to take different perspectives, to, to sort of entertain uh, multi-perspectival outlooks, um, and not 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 in the kind of the postmodern sense, but but so yeah, I mean, so that create, creative aspect of music is very good uh, for helping people kind of see through the um, conditioning uh, structures, you know, that we, we inhabit. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, you know, that's um, at the same time, I mean, you have also a lot of people that are uh, in the professional world of music that are sometimes very, <laughs> can be also very uh, conditioned or, or not, you know, but the thing is that, you know, you are, you know, it gives you a different access point, right, to experience. So it gives you a different way to mediate between yourself and the world that, that can kind of uh, start to, you know, reveal maybe hidden aspects of, of society. Yeah, and there's the old yeah. uh, kind of, it, it, you know, for, for artists in general to sort of kind of fall into uh, anti-authoritarian attitudes and that sort of thing. That just seems like a, a common a common theme that's uh, you run into a lot. Yeah, I mean, but also at the same time, I mean, music also uh, is is one of the most um, well used uh, modes of sort of instilling uh, social socialized behavior, social conformity, um, and also sort of the process of enculturation. Right. So this is. Is something you find, you know, from you know the most, uh, you know, from the Aboriginal tribe to, you know, the the elite prep school kid, you know, whatever. I <laughs> mean, so you do find that there's a certain extent that uh, the you know by learning and and also that group aspect, right, of music. So there there is that aspect, and that may you know may not say per se affect musicians, but it certainly can affect. Listeners, but there's you know, of course, it, it, again, it depends on the uh, cultural context. But uh, the defining and reinforcing social identity is is an important aspect of of music, right? It's that's kind of a kind of a basis um, of of music. And if you go back to music and it's kind of original, some of the, the theories of development of music include that of um, you know creating social cohesion. Um, and then if you look at obviously the neurological aspects, if you're, you're playing a cowbell, you know, you're with the A-way tribe and you're playing the drum and, you know, you just learn and pick it up. By doing that, you're actually creating a miniature model of the society, right? Everyone has their role, but they're all working together and this kind of thing. So, you know, of course, that has that sort of, uh, Janice face, you know, double-edged, um, aspect to it. But, um, but I'll say that there are actually quite a lot of musicians, that, I mean, at least, say maybe in more on the professional side that aren't necessarily rebellious, right? Or the rebellion is 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 directed. You know what I mean? So but but certainly I mean that, you know, the um the uh you know music does allow a definition of your identity um uh, you know apart from sort of the dominant uh, social uh system, you know. Yeah, and a lot of the time uh, which is I think this will be a good point to into some of the manipulative aspects of when people with power control the culture industry. Um, uh, music, you know, like like you just uh, said uh, in your in, um, in your dialogue there, 
there there are elements of controlled uh, you know controlled opposition. And uh, it's interesting because uh, uh, you brought up Plato, and I was looking for this quote here from Republic Part Four. It says, "When the modes of music change, the, the fundamental laws of the state all change with them. Lawlessness easily steals in the form of amusement, and at first sight, it appears harmless. Little by little, the spirit of license finding a home imperceptibly penetrates into manners and customs." Once it invades contracts between man and man, goes on to laws and constitutions in utter recklessness, ending at last in an overthrow of all rights, private as well as public. And um, just in our modern age, we know this to kind of culminate in the 1960s uh, hippie era and then, you know, later people could reference, you know, rock and roll and, and punk. Uh, well, I guess even earlier with uh, the 1950s rock and roll. And Chris and I have kind of touched on that in past calls, and I heard you uh, talking about that as well. I don't think people are totally, completely aware of uh, how contrived the rebellion was in culture uh, circa, you know, 1955, and how there was, like, this lead-up to rock and roll. Um, you know, like like people associate James Dean or, or a lot of the early teen idols with rock and roll. That was all before rock and roll even began. And uh, they were setting up that image, like, you know, Marlon Brando and the Wild One. Uh, there weren't motorcycle gangs with guys wearing leather until that movie came out. And then the rock and roll came later to provide the soundtrack for it. And uh, just one more thing before I give your uh, comment on what I'm talking about is another thing is that music moves our mind through kind of waves of time, and you don't realize uh, how much time has passed. And if the music is running parallel to all the themes in the entertainment that you're engaged in, like the TV and the movies, and just the stuff happening in, uh, you know, social context. You're unaware of the changes, uh, for the most part, because everything is moving in the same direction all at the same time with the same themes and memes running through it parallel. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, yeah, there's yeah, definitely a lot of, uh, kind of jumping off points, uh, from that, in that, that's, Definitely correct. I mean, I would say it goes back, uh, you know, prior to that. Um, I mean, if you look at, I mean, the beginning, I mean, you know, all these topics, you can just kind of blow them up. You know, the difference between, say, classical and popular music. Uh, but example is that the, uh, you know, in America, you had a sort of uh, very fluid uh, social, you know, categories kind of in the, you know, the early you know, 18th centuries, you know, whatever, uh, 19th century and stuff like that. But then, um, you, then you start to see this differentiation. So you'd have these concert programs where you have an opera singer and, a, you know, and a, and a folk song and, you know, and they're all kind of put together. Uh, and that also, that was indicative of the social structure. And then you have the beginning of the first kind of popular music was the broadsides, which are these published songs. Uh, you have hawkers kind of walk around and, 
you know, they'd even have songs, you know, they'd just be, you know, run off even in, you know, the day before. And, you know, about they'd have a song about a politician and you could buy the sheet music and play it at home. And people would walk around and sell these songs. And then you have like Stephen Foster, who kind of developed the popular song genre. Um, he was a great uh, composer. Like his songs are still known, like Camp Town Ladies and all that. But he's one of those innovators who ended up, you know, dying and dying of tuberculosis in a New York hotel room. But uh, he didn't, you know, get his royalties. But you have this, um, you know, at all these points, you have these interactions, right? You have, um, you have, uh, I think I mentioned that we talking to Jan, but the cakewalk is an example. It became a very popular music form and a dance form. And the cakewalk developed when the slaves would, would mock the way their masters dance into this kind of exaggerated type of dance um, that was, you know, making fun of, uh, the, you know, the ballroom sort of traditions. And then the, the uh, slave owners really started to get a kick out of it, and they present the one with the best dance with the cake. That's how it became the cakewalk. But through this, you have this, this became a dance style that sort of crossed kind of a cultural uh, boundary, right? But then if you go to, um, you know, you start looking at, like, uh, Tin Pan Alley and things like that, this is, you know, um, this is the kind of the popular song merchants. And, you know, this is, um, you know, early 20th century. And, and this was, this is where you have this very consolidated control over the songs. Of course, you have the development of the recording industry. And they start to have these songs, you know, they, they're tearing the songs for different levels of the culture, but they are, and a lot of things are being ripped off from various other you know, other pieces, you know, not being credited. But basically, at that point, there is a manipulation and one could say a deliberate ma manipulation of the mass mind, whether that's more nefarious than just simply commercialization, but you see certain um, uh, memes or, you know, things coming in about, you know, more promiscuous sexuality, things like that. Um, and this is coming in in the Tin Pan Alley era, and that's that's, um, you know, then you start to see, you can look at, um, you know, Al Jolson, the jazz singer. If you're not familiar with him, he's one of the top blackface performers. Mammy, you know, the movie Mammy. It's pretty funny to watch him, but uh, <coughs> he took <clears throat> yeah, the whole blackface minstrel tradition, which is coming off of, you know, partially you're taking... You know, it's sort of a mockery, but it's also sort of a, uh, a cultural appropriation. Uh, at the same time, it's presenting a model of behavior, et cetera, you know, sort of in the guise of maybe like a jester or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, so you have this process going, um, and, you know, to the extent that, you know, this aligns with other things, say, for example, you know, Edward Bernays put on this musical uh, very not musical, this ballet. It was very, very sexual, very risque at the time. Um, you know, you have you have trends. I mean, I think, I mean, I tend to believe that there is sort of a natural unfolding of culture and society that will occur. Things are going to change. I mean, things that are valid. You know, if you got a hammer and a nail, you don't need to reinvent the hammer and change colors of the hammer every year. It just works, right? And there's a lot of things that. There are things that need to change, right? You can have stagnant, uh, you know, societies in, uh, you know, in the in the jungle. Um, I have a pretty gruesome example of that, which I won't go into. But <laughs> they actually started eating the men in this village, 
uh, kind of unpleasant. But so you can have things like that happen. But fundamentally, you do um, note this. Um, first of all, you have a a, a large scale. Uh, attempt to understand the mass media, right? Marconi, the radio initially was reserved for military purposes, and then you have this means of dissemination of culture, um, and then you have also, you know, the recording industry, and even in the recording industry, early recording industry, we can see, um, you know, primarily, at least in terms of the po- popular music genres, you have, you know, places like West Virginia, Appalachians, you have, you know, you kind of have this merger of this is where things like bluegrass and different kinds of blues and all this music was really just coming from this direct contact between people, a lot of times, you know, building railroads or whatever. But then you have this, you split these categories. Here's hillbilly music, and this is for white people. And race records, this is for black people, right? So you have this split of these, of this sort of, these musical forms that kind of grew up side by side. This is obviously sort of more in sort of a lower class or underclass Thing, but that's an example of where you have a sort of a, you're differentiating, right? You're you're categorizing the listener, and so it's in a sense you're you're not only it, that's one important thing to understand is you're not only. I mean, if you look at the radio project and go into that a little more detail, and that's very extensive, extensive research on this. But basically, you also you're not only you're not finding necessarily. Just finding a marketing group or a demographic, you're also creating that demographic or starting to create that demographic, right, by doing that. So so when you have these associations, especially you mentioned the you know, leather jackets and rebellion and, the you know, you have the, the teen delinquent movies. You have, like, um, you know, Bill Haley, Rock Around the Clock in Blackboard Jungle and stuff like that. Immediately you are, you know, connecting this music uh, with um, with a particular style of rebellion. And then you have, I mentioned earlier, this sort of uh, race divide, and then now you have this generation gap or this generation, you know, the juvenile delinquent, this thing and that thing, you know. And I always wonder, you know, we're, we're so bashed over the head with this thing that, oh, just, uh, you know, traditional America was just, or traditional societies are just really just, so oppressive and we're so much more free now we you know but you wonder was it really that bad that people you know that you know was it that bad you know that people you know went in these um you know extremely um you know uh perilous path you know that culminates in uh you know the really self-destructive behavior we see in the 60s through the present day so anyway there's a there's a study from uh 1955 and it was by a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. His name was Benjamin Fine, and it was called uh, it was called uh, One Million Delinquents. And it was a book, and uh, that really created the so-called public awareness of that there was this juvenile delinquency problem. Uh-huh. And then from that book forward. That's where you get this kind of culture of juvenile delinquency, which leads to the rebel without a cause. And that whole idea, you know, that didn't even exist. And, and another thing, too, is is uh, at, at the tail end of the 1940s, you know, uh, I think, like, the first heartthrob singer was, like, you know, Frank Sinatra with the Bobby Soxers. And... Um, 
what you start to see is this breakaway culture with um, with they started calling uh, people who were uh, in their teens young persons and then by the time the 50s came around Madison Avenue created the term teenager and not only were you creating a wedge and a divide between parents and children uh, with that terminology but you're also creating a a whole brand new marketplace to uh, sell music and to sell youth culture and um, on top of that also creating like I said a divide between uh, parents and, and uh, children where that's what they used to be you know you, you used to be known as a child it was there was no term teenager and uh, once you were able to sell that you were able to sell this idea that you could you know uh, that the rebellion was no longer aimed at just, uh, you know, the authority, like, you know, say, maybe the government or your school or whatever. Now your parents were the bad ones. And and those movies and a lot of the uh, early songs uh, kind of uh, point in that direction as well. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, that's, uh, that's something where, you know, you have this, um, you have this liminal phase that's created, right? This liminal phase, which is between childhood and adulthood. So, I mean, there was uh, uh, a guy, I think, in the Civil War, he was like 15 years old, and he was like an admiral of a ship, you know what I mean? So, there was, and a lot of times you would start working, um, and then there was also this, um, a very important thing to understand is that of social practices, right? And these are um, behaviors, these are understandings of the world that are that are gained by observing, doing, participating. And this is, when you break this link between the generations, um, it's not just between the father and the son, it's between the father and his father and his father, you know what I mean? So you're really, you're looking at the means, uh, the non-institutional means, right? Um, uh, which we can differentiate, let's say, classical culture with folk culture, so to speak, or whatever, but you're, you're, you're uh, you're, you're breaking historical linkages. And these are, a lot of these are embodied phenomena. These are not things that you can even articulate or, you, you know, I mean, certainly some researcher can come in and, and formulate and figure out what's going on. But there's many, many things that are, you know, that there's certain lessons, so to speak, that are very global, as well as, you know, developing um, sort of a way of being in the world. And I'll just... I'll just throw out another Plato quote here. This is from the third book of the Republic. Um, and I'll just read this here. And this kind of ties in kind of what we're talking about. And therefore, I said, musical training is a more potent instrument than any other because rhythm and harmony find their way into the inner place of the soul on which they mightily fasten, imparting grace, making the soul of him who is rightly educated graceful or, or of him who is ill-educated ungraceful. And also because he has received the true education of the inner being will most shrewdly perceive omissions or faults in art and nature and with true taste while he praises and rejoices over and receives into his soul the good and becomes noble and good. He will justify blame and hate the bad. Now in the days of youth, even before he will recognize and salute the friend with whom his education has made him long familiar. Okay, I think that's a very important passage because that shows that this idea of discernment, this idea of being able to perceive what is right, what is, you know, what is, 
what is true, to understand what's happening in the society, you know, to be sort of an autonomous individual with possessed of agency. That's that's what we see kind of eliminated with these sort of these categories, right? When you um, when you split uh, these things, and there is, but there is, you know, there is a phase, right? This is the thing to understand, you know, with music and with all these processes, there is a natural part of where it maybe not in all cultures but there usually is a part where you know you break from either your childhood or you break you know you have to make your own way in the world and you may leave home or whatever um and there's you know certainly this has gone on historically but that that becomes this uh again the word you probably from the word liminal which is this kind of threshold stage right you're never really crossing the threshold you're always trapped in between um two ages so to speak and this um, lack of definition of social roles and social categories you get this rebellion that is just you know it's just kind of spinning around in circles it's not a true rebellion so to speak of where you're you've imbibed all the elements of society and culture and you're moving on in your own way but it's just this going nowhere phase and that's why you see people that are you know they they still you know, uh, you know, uh, maybe not so much anymore. They may have died out, but I remember seeing, you know, these uh, drive-ins. We got all the people in their their classic cars, you know, and their their you know forty plus oh year old wives are wearing bobby socks and they're listening to like you know uh, doo-wop. And so you get this sort of uh, we got you know arrested development, but you you really you sort of rob on on both angles, right? You rob the ability to make decisions. You you dismantle the. Uh, cultural transmission process and then you also end up in this rebellion which is actually the most safe kind of rebellion you can have generally speaking you know that's right yeah i wanted to give chris a chance to chime in but i just wanted to make one thing because you touched on something uh that i talk about constantly and alvin toffler's mentioned this in future shock and uh, tons of other uh, cultural uh shapers have uh, mentioned the importance of nostalgia, which you just touched on there. And nostalgia is great because you can you can sell modern ideas through nostalgia because it seems so innocent. And like you said, it's also part of arrested development um, as well because uh, uh, I've heard many people mention they're they're very surprised that you know that like guys my dad's age who are in their sixties. They dress like teenagers still, and they just follow the current trends. They don't really stick to, you know, kind of something that you would look to, like a, like a, a father figure from my grandparents' age. My grand, my grandfather, he would, you know, never be, you know, he would never wear a pair of shorts with tennis shoes, uh, unless he was like working in the backyard. He wouldn't wear that to the grocery store or something like that, you know, and, um, and yeah, so so even though I don't think it's bad to wear tennis shoes and shorts to the grocery store, what the, it, what it is indicative of is a change in culture and a change in what uh, people perceive to be um, important. And uh, oh, sorry, no. oh, yes, yes, yes uh, that, that's pretty. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, interrupt you there. No, exactly, because that's uh, it, it's um, see nostalgia. Right, it's one thing. I mean, I, I say I, in one way I was lucky in that I, you know, grew up in America, and then I, you know, I, you know, I went. I really lived in India, right? I lived in various environments, and I kind of 
you know, immersed myself, so to speak, uh, in this d- different world. And um, like when I, I lived up in the Himalayas, where I had a house up there, I lived with these villagers, and it was, I felt, you know, it was pretty quote unquote primitive, but I, I felt it was wonderful. I mean, just because there's a, there's like this reality that you get. This it, it's hard to categorize it. It's hard to um, you know quantify it, but it's just very. It's like it's like you just connected with life. You're not, you know, you don't need to rush off. You know, you don't need to become a, you know, a Hollywood celebrity or get a new car. You're just connected with life that has this, I don't know, this very visceral feeling of reality. And then with nostalgia, you know, when, um, you know, when you you are sort of immersed in a functioning culture that still has this these links with a tradition or that past because that past is actually carried in the body right if it's these things can you know you can find uh, you know language groups that are these isolated areas and they, and they still you know they speak like for example Afghanistan they speak very archaic Farsi or things like that you know but these things will survive and even you know types of knowledge will survive and it's almost like it is kind of living it's in the body it's, it's embodied right it's it's there and and that nostalgia comes when you don't even have you're not really able to experience anything that's real and then you just go back and back and now it's just gone to the the point of insanity right i mean with nostalgia it's like they're redoing all the 80s and 90s movies i mean even hollywood and it's i mean I, i'll let Christo, so I'm in there, but I mean, that's something I, I've really been kind of just thinking about. It's almost like, it's kind of an, it's like an, almost like an end of history where they're creating this cultural, they've almost like put the wall down. They put the dome down, right? And all this stuff is just bouncing back. You look at half the bands are just regurgitating other styles. They're bringing back another style or this or this or this. And, you know, in 1950s, you know, yeah, some people would listen to music from the 20s or whatever or, or not. But can you imagine, you know, I mean, 1965, I mean, we still listen to, you know, a lot of people still base their lives off of music that's, you know, what are 40, 50 years old plus, and even their identities, even their understanding. And also to distinguish between the classical art forms, which are, you know, extremely involved, which generally requires state sponsorship and some kind of a written tradition. And, you know, and this is, you know, much more involved in advance. These are things they call, quote unquote, timeless. But, you know, something like Bach, you know, that's not, you know, listening to Bach is not like, you know, listening to, um, you know, the, the Beach Boys, so to speak, in that it does have this, it's reached sort of a plane where it does maintain that sort of, value over time as opposed to just this constant self-referencing maze you know that we're sort of caught in yeah you see those eight that i i, I noticed that when uh, i i took a trip out to california i'm in oklahoma and i took a trip out to california uh not too long ago and uh I, I just noticed, like, uh, it's it usually like younger kids, like, uh, it, it dressed in the style of the of the 80s, and uh, I, I didn't really realize that was a thing until uh, just recently, and uh, yeah, yeah, sure enough, and so they're bringing that back, and uh, yeah, does, and I'm thinking to myself, so there's this nostalgia for the 80s, was it the 80s that long ago, and then now I realize, yeah, I guess it was, because uh, I'm yeah. older than I realize, but yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, what, what y'all are talking about it reminds me of uh, oh, like some st- uh, stuff that uh, like Marshall McLuhan talks about with television, as far as how it facilitates this uh, like retribalization, where 
it, it is uh, uh, fomenting this new kind of global uh, tribal order. And uh, when you're talking about with like 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 teenagers, how uh, that there wasn't even a, a, a term, there wasn't even the term teenagers, and now you know it's, it's seen as a, a classification that that didn't necessarily exist before. And if you look at uh, you know so-called primitive tribes, you know talking about what you know what, what how do you define you know tribalization? Well, I mean it would consist of you know the extended family, and their music and everything would be incorporated into their work, like they would go about through their day with their uh, traditional songs, and which had you know special meaning to them for their for their tribe, and it gave them you know the sense of cohesiveness and. Uh, everything and everybody kind of participated in it. So now that we live in this artificially contrived, you know, culture or civilization or what it's called, uh, that th- those tendencies are like can be taken and, and, and manipulated. So you could like take a class, you could you can define a classification like teenager and uh, turn them into sort of an artificial tribe and give them like their uh you know and this is top down of course and then they're given this identity they're given this culture and then they could uh you know divide and conquer by creating a uh, uh this tribal warfare so to speak within the uh open societies in general yeah no i mean that's uh yeah i mean that that's a couple good points there i mean one thing um i mean we, yeah with music um is that um, you know, a couple. I, I came up with these kind of eight categories of how music can be used for mind control, but of course it, it can go both ways. But one thing is, you know, of course, sorting people into groups, right? Large-scale societies, mm-hmm. you create social fragmentation, you create social groups. But the thing is that, you know, again, if you look at traditional song, traditional ballads, I mean, there is, they are actually like encapsulated text, right? They're like living Texts or philosophical vehicles, you know, that they could, they have all these right. social meanings embedded in the songs as well as the history and all this stuff. So the history is sort of, you know, it's through that, that it's sort of a narrative. It aligns you with this much wider and broader narrative, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, again, these artificial sort of categories, you know, which again, there, it's not such, so to speak, you know, I mean, you look, say, Aleister Crowley, it's not that there aren't people, there's, you know, total sexual deviance, you know, and, and you know, whatever, that uh, rakes that just, you know, that are like that. Yeah, there's pe- these people exist. You know, there's all kinds and categories of people. But when these possibly extant categories are forced on people, when natural processes, and again, you know, we're looking at, human beings that have evolved over, you know, tens of thousands of years. And so you're suddenly taking something that either A, was part of your local family, your group, you know, your, your uh, you know, religious tradition, or the other side is, you know, part of a, a uh, you know, a, a art form of music, which is, you know, state supported, you know, which is, but which, you know, allows for this very high development of creativity in a non-commercial uh, matrix, right, or non-commercial zone. You um, you end up with uh, you kind of end up with, with what we what we see right now. And just one thing, just to throw in there that the post, you know, the, uh, the I don't know if you guys remember the book called The Geography of Nowhere, and talks about the entire redesign of the American city based on 
the automobile, right? Creation of automobile suburbs, and that's a that's a massive social engineering project that, that's you can you know see with your own eyes, right? That you, you're designing so you no longer have integrated neighborhoods where you can walk to the store or whatever. You know, you're living you know in these little sort of pseudo farms, you know, your pseudo suburban paradise, and you have to drive everywhere, and suddenly the um, the means, the, the sort of the the, the product of uh, Capitalism, so to speak. Well, this is a little bit for, from Guy Debord, sort of the more uh, society the spectacle. But then the product of the capitalism reinforces that alienation. So now you've designed these cities. Everyone has these cars, and the cars themselves, uh, well, ostensibly being a means of freedom, become another type of bondage or dividing you from the world, dividing you from your immediate experience, dividing you from your neighbors, you know, marking you socially by what kind of car you have, you know, locking you into a car payment and car insurance and your car, you know what I mean? So all these, you know, these things, I think, I think if you even pull something that seems totally unrelated to music, I think you can find uh, more um, uh, validation, you know, for what you're just saying. Yeah, you look at the way... I've got a quote here from... Oh, good. Oh, oh, real real quick, Chris, let me me say this, and then you can uh, uh, chime in right after me. Let me me read this quick quote from uh, Alvin Toffler. Robbed of adult heroes or role models other than their own parents, children of streamlined nuclear families are increasingly flung into the arms of the only other people available to them, other children. They spend more time with one another, and they become more responsive to the influence of peers than ever before. Where rather than idolizing an uncle, they idolize Bob Dylan or Donovan, or whomever else the peer group holds up for a lifestyle model. Thus, we are beginning to form not only um, a student ghetto, but semi-ghettos of preteens and teenagers, each with its own peculiar tribal characteristics, its own fads, fashions, heroes, and villains. Go ahead. Oh yeah, no, that's that's basically you know what I was, uh, you know what what I was uh, saying, you know, is that um, you know that uh, you know, and it's it's a little bit, you know, I think it even goes a little bit beyond that because, I mean, one of the most like I, I've seen this, I've seen this happen before my eyes, right? I've seen traditional cultures in in all over the world, and I've watched you get the first wave of you know. Travelers, you got some, um, you know, hippies coming in, then you have some other people coming in, and suddenly, you know, someone builds a, you know, someone starts bringing techno, and then someone builds a guest house, and I, you come back three years later, the whole entire social fabric is just gone, right? So, the um, one of the most powerful resistant things is that extended family structure locked into communities locked into defined barriers uh, or defined uh, barriers meaning defined thresholds of of life like life experience you have a threshold and so these you know and this ties into you know gen- the whole gender war thing you know where the man, man is being you know there's a you guys may have read this uh, article by a male feminist who says basically he's calling for men to be wiped out men are evil but I mean this, you know, you, you really see this across the board of, you know, well, identity politics on one level, right? You're dividing people. But on the other level, you are, I think, the sort of tragic aspect of it is, is you really strip from people, or a lot of people, just these 
even if you were dirt poor, you still had, you know, this sense of being part of, you know, this life around you, right? And being part of these family or whatever it may be. Um, and uh, going a little further from that, you see this glamorization of death, right? Uh, live fast, die young, you know, all over, or even, you know, uh, songs related to suicide or whatever, but this idea, yeah, live fast, die, die at 23, man, die, die at 27, you know, I mean, I used to, you know, when I was playing, I was, uh, I could have actually been with a pretty, pretty well-known rock group, you know, I was kind of, and I, I made a choice to go to India, and sometimes I, I was regretting that, but man, you know, I could have been, you know, driving a nice car now instead of, you know, whatever I'm doing, but that, that, you know, the choices are, taken away uh, from us and then we're presented with something that's very important, right? Understanding mortality, right? Understanding death, like not hiding from it, but realizing this, you know, this incredible, incredibly potent facet of life that, you know, you have to acknowledge it. And if you don't, then, you know, you're just, you know, you can, you know, you're never going to have your full, the full experience of living. At least that's a sort of Heideggerian viewpoint there. But I mean, and so when you, you take this thing of, okay, death, and then suddenly you glamorize these death, you know, die young, you know, it's, it's really cool. Oh, he died, you know, you know, he, you know, whatever. I mean, this happens, but don't, why would that be glamorized? Why would self-destruction? So it's just like the rebellion, right? So instead of actually mastering the rules and structures of society and possibly moving beyond them, you get this sort of inchoate, unformed individual who's just bouncing around in this sort of hamster treadmill of rebellion, and then you throw in this idea of, uh, you know, you know, just push the envelope, you know, die, you know, live excessively and, and die young, and it's and it's really, it's it's really, uh, you know, it's really glamorized, and so then even this, the most, you know, you have birth and death, kind of the the bookends of life, even the most basic of life experiences are, are turned into sort of a carnival show that that draw on our, our natural inclinations, but then lead us into these um, sort of phantasmagorical hall of mirrors. Yeah, I can see that there's a... Uh, a uh, and I think this is uh, purposely played upon um, with this uh, rebellion... Uh, the idea being put in in there. I think the reason why uh, young people, teenagers, and young people, uh, especially, respond to it is like I mean, if you think about it, you, you go into this institution, uh, schools, and then it's like a real uh, oppressive environment. I mean, you go, you're from very young age, you're told to uh, just deny every natural impulse that you have and sit still for hours and listen to uh like this teacher this authority figure and and you're always getting you know bossed around and told what to do and uh it's a very um restrictive uh oppressive environment and then so it over the years you know of pent-up frustration and uh and that and that uh, agitation, underlying agitation there, and then then you're given something to like. Okay, now you can express yourself, but uh, that's going to be defined for you how you're going to rebel or re- express yourself against this oppressive uh, system. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's uh, um, you know, going back to that Plato uh, quote that I mentioned. Uh, Try to find it here again, but he, he says that the ed, through the education, through the music, they learn 
how to perceive what is good and what is bad. And you'll salute the friend, the friend meaning the society, you know, or, you know, properly functioning society or, you know, what is real. And so, so even, yeah, even the rebellion, which is going to be a natural outgrowth of just, um, you know, decaying and oppressive, uh, education, you know, based on Pavlovian principles of, you know, operant conditioning when the bell rings and all this stuff. I mean, and this, uh, you know, said that's, um, you know, interesting, you know, behaviorist principles. You know, you hear the bell, and that's straight out of uh, Pavlov, you know. And uh, so, yeah, so we're in these uh, educational environments that that are soul-killing, but especially for those, there's a lot of people that are just kind of robotic conformists, and there's people that aren't. And and then you have this sort of, um, the only thing you can find is because of this, it this mean that you can't communicate with your you know your your you have to break free from your parents your parents represent you know what's all that's wrong in the world and so you don't have a way or one doesn't have a way really to find anything and you know and especially say if you have that grounding you know if you're if you were trained i would say just posit here that if you were trained say properly in some kind of things like that in music or something else that would give you that ability you'd be able to see you could see what was wrong in your environment, but then you wouldn't necessarily be, you know, hanging out with the stoners, you know, and, and you know, behind the school and, you know, breaking windows or something that to express your, your discontent, which ultimately doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't, right. it's just, uh, it, it's a non, non-effectual behavior strategy. Yeah. Can you talk about, um, can you talk about, uh, how, how we're, we're moved through you know, waves of time, uh, you know, uh, through culture and, uh, kind of, I, I don't, I, I don't know how to express it as eloquently as you did, uh, when you were talking to Jan, but you, you really did touch on something that, that I try to, uh, articulate on past episodes and I can't do a very good job of it. But, you know, people aren't aware of, of current, culture while it's taking place right and it takes it takes uh, a really insightful individual to actually realize that they are in a culture and like myself I'll, I'll take myself for an example I didn't even know I existed in a culture and when I was listening to you know punk rock and uh, you know rock and roll in in high school and that type of stuff I didn't think of myself as being in a culture, and I, I kind of thought of myself kind of, you know, outside of what was the mainstream, but like you've touched on before about, you know, there's all these little subcultures uh, that are kind of put out there for you to get involved in as well, um, and, you know, uh, elements of nostalgia woven into them. But most people, they just think in very linear sequences. They, they think, okay... When, you know, when I go to the grocery store and the stuff's on the shelf and, and I'm at the store, like the store is, is part of nature. When I get in my car and I'm driving, this is part of the natural environment. And, and it's even more so with entertainment, music and movies and television. And when the themes are running parallel through all of those things and moving your mind, because, you know, the most important revolution is the one that's taking place in the mind. Um, it's not even uh, the physical, quote-unquote, revolutions that are the most important. 
uh, how how would you if 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 you were going to explain it to somebody on trying to wake them up, like to get them to realize that they were in a culture and a lot of the stuff that that was involved in that culture was manufactured. How would you articulate that? Yeah, that's kind of a yeah. That that's definitely kind of a tough question. I mean, and even I'm glad you you, you drew that out of uh, you know. Uh, my talk with Jan, because that wasn't necessarily something I was trying to um, articulate as a broad point, but I guess it came through. But I'm just going to read a quote here uh, from uh, a sociologist, Edward T. Hall. He has a book called The Hidden Dimensions, kind of interesting book. But this is, uh, quote is, uh, most of culture lies hidden and is outside of voluntary control, making up the warp and weft of human existence. Even when small fragments of culture are elevated to awareness, they are difficult to change, not only because they are so personally experienced, but because people cannot act or interact at all in any meaningful way except through the medium of culture. Man and his extensions constitute one interrelated system. Okay? So, that's. I think that, that kind of... Um, you know, this is actually kind of interesting book, primarily about space. But it's it's interesting that you know you you perceive culture in a sense as kind of like it's kind of like oxygen or water, or it can be right. In, in that, if you're immersed in it, it it is the ground, right? It's the ground which allows you to make sense of the world. And the one thing is though, when you start pulling that apart too much. If you look at, you know, uh, postmodernism and all this other stuff, you know, you end up in this, you know, not this real netherworld, you know, where there is no culture, there is no value, there is no tradition. And that's the main thrust of most academic, a lot of academic work now, uh, at least in the, you know, sort of humanities areas and stuff, is this idea that there really isn't, is all multiple truths, there's all multiple perspectives, there's nothing there. But the fact is, yes, we live, um, we live in a culture. And that, that's one of those words, you know, the German word Kultur, you know, that's, it's a Zeitgeist, you know, the, the time spirit, right? This is, this is something that there's always been, you know, uh, philosophers and, you know, people of that ilk that have been critical of the the where they are their space time so to speak and you know positing questions like what is perception what is knowledge what is reality right but for most people <laughs> and, and given that quote I read which I think is true without culture you can't really interact so it's really the it's you know again it's like the, the it's the fluid if you're it's almost like the fish you know you're if you take the fish out of the water he's gonna he's gonna drown and when you look at a manipulated culture I mean for me um, I had some experiences that were, um, I mean, I, 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 that were pretty intense, very direct um, experiences that I, I haven't really talked about much. I had, you almost say like kind of visions, right? That kind of, I, I like I, one time I, I, you know, it was almost like I was in Central America, like I was in a Central American country. You know what I mean? Like I could just, I saw this whole police state sort of unfolding. You know, it was uh, kind of a weird, uh, you know, Experience, but so I mean, myself, I had certain, um, you know, things that I started just to see. Um, and, and so I, you know, I had, and it's not necessarily alienation, but 
you know, there's there's something where, you know, you start to, you know, criti- critically reflect a bit on how you interact with people, you know, without, you know, overturning the whole apple cart, right? Because if you get too much into that, you know, you, you can either end up in some kind of religious cult or end up, you know, a functioning sort of uh, schizophrenic or highly neurotic person. But the, um, you know, the medium of culture, people don't realize, first of all, that what's happened, and you had a very good summation of that, is we, you know, we don't think that, you know, I'm going outside, okay, I'm going to the store. You don't think I'm getting into this internal combustion machine that, you know, that was designed at this time, da 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 So I'm, you know, we sort of, the technology becomes subsumed into this sort of subconscious terrain of the culture, right? So you don't, you know, you don't think about hearing, you know, you know, 60s rock rebels playing in the grocery store. Um, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't think of that because basically, you know, our habitual functions, our perceptual editing, right? That's, um, that's how we were able to do things. Cause if, if you don't have that, you know, way to, um, you know, sort of synthesize memories and perceptions, you know, like every second, you know, you have to like rethink everything you're doing. So that's obviously, you're not going to get too far, you know, where you're going, but, you know, when you have such a highly manipulated, uh, interlocking, intermeshing, you know, network uh, of these of these things, um, you know, to be able to, I mean, I think that that some people are going to sort of feel that this is not the right thing. I think it's very important, especially with young people, that they don't get into. Um, you know, these, um, you know, some of these very destructive lifestyles and things like that, because, you know, I mean, probably a lot of people, there's no one you can relate to except for people that are part of this subculture that seem to get it, but then you're going to get introduced into all these, you know, uh, you know, kind of destructive behavior patterns that, that you may or may not make it out of alive or, or without being, you know, uh, a burnout or whatever. So, I mean, so it is a very tricky question, and and the other side of that is that there's a lot of the cultural studies, there's a lot of the academic work that that goes to sort of critique culture, which I was, you know, I got into quite a bit, and a lot of that that leads you back. It's like this. It's like the the merry-go-round. It leads you leads you right back to the same, you know, the same place you started. It's almost like the academic form of rock rebellion in that. You know, you deconstruct everything. You know, you, this idea that you know William Reich talks about. You know, you know, we're, it's the repression of Western society through sexuality. So you know, you have to like, you know, have you get someone like Kinsey, you know, who's this maniacal pedophile uh, maniac, sex maniac, who you know had these for this fraudulent data that was published. You know, that transformed America and saying, no, you know, you know, it basically normalized extremely deviant behaviors as well as being, you know, cultural weaponry in the form of, in the form of, um, research. So, you know, so you see these people that are sort of, um, you know, giving you a way out in, in a much more, uh, you could say much, maybe not deeper, but a much more powerful or society, you know, culturally elevated level than, you know, than, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen or, um, you know, Sid Vicious or whatever. But so the, yeah, the difficulty is that, you know, without having that grounding, you know, and Jan talks about the trivium and, and, you know, or Plato talking about music without having, you know, this ability to observe a sort of phenomenological sense to be able to 
try to get to your direct perceptual um, you know, experiences. Try to be able to shift perceptual modalities. Try to break out of these conditioned habit patterns that, you know, we, that's part of a society, right? You're going to have these things ingrained. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, the main thing is to approach it systematically and not, you know, not just say, oh, everything's bad. No, I mean, everything is not bad. Uh, there's still a lot of good things that, that, that are maintained. Uh, you know, there's still some functioning elements of society, but I mean, we are in such a, you know, such a mass level of manipulation that, you know, like you walk into a, a bar or grocery store, you go to the gym, there's the telescreens. There's always, you know, I constantly have televised images around you. You know, we just, you know, if you go to a place, you know, in Europe or something, they don't have that. You come back to America, you're like, whoa. That's this odd, you know. I can't even, you know, go on the treadmill without being blasted by twenty different TV screens, and so, you know, when you know when you realize that, it can cause sort of an even greater degree of anxiety than than just the actual imposition of the uh, the cultural system. So, so you know, sorry, back to the original point. I mean, I think that I mean the main thing is to to try to develop some critical understanding. Why do you like this? Why don't you like this? Why, you know, why do I eat this? Why don't I eat that? You know, why, why do I say dude? Why do I still say, you know, I say dude sometimes. I mean, that's one of those things. I, I sometimes I say dude. But I'm, 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 caught in the, I'm caught in the dude matrix. But, you know, these are things I have. I can shift into dialogue. I'm, you know, I can talk. You know, being around various music subcultures, I can sometimes shift into a discourse that's completely like that. You know, so, I mean, it's not... It's not necessarily a, a you know a, a terrifying thing, but it's if you're not aware of it, you know you you really can be totally totally trapped. And I, you know, and I know I kind of went on that. It, it's it, that's a really big. It's an awesome question, but it's obviously quite quite involved. So, anyways. Uh, so you guys want to respond to that? I was waiting for John. Oh, yeah, that was that was a that was a great answer. Um, uh, Chris, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tur- turn it over to you and, um, you could finish out the, uh, interview with Hans because, uh, I have to, uh, tend to something with my daughter here, so, um. Okay. Uh, Hans, it was great talking to you. Maybe you can come back another time in the future. I'd love to, yeah, cause I mean, we just kinda did kind of a, you know, we did get into many specifics, but it was, it was great talking to you guys and, and, uh, and also I, I like the, um, you know, bringing up these, uh, you know, various uh, different sources to kind of uh, create, you know, new um, new directions and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely. Been great. absolutely. You, you've got um, you could you could talk to Chris for uh, a little bit longer. I think you said you have a little bit more a little bit more time. So, go ahead yeah, and uh, do that. Okay, great. Excellent. All right. Well, take uh, care, John. Talk, all right. Talk to you guys later. Bye bye. Okay. Bye-bye. See you, John. Um. Yeah, that is, uh, uh, you know, the thing about, uh, uh, the culture, you know, it, it, people, I, I think in general kind of have this idea that, uh, it, it, it originates, you know, from the people and it's, you know, by the people, for the people, you know, so to speak. And, uh, I, I, I don't know if, you, like, you could, can you go into how there's uh, some indicators out there that uh, that that may not be necessarily the case? Oh yeah, well I mean, if you look at you know, I mean, culture. First of the thing is one of those words that 
can mean everything and mean nothing, right? So you really, uh, right. I mean, but but on the other hand, I mean, obviously it's there. That that's that's what makes it even more tricky, right? It's not like uh, so. Um, so primarily, though, I mean, one of the the definitions is a complex whole of society, right? So it's all these things, but this relates to you know everything from. You know, I, I think. Well, I think the fundamental thing is the mode of cultural transmission. So I was going to get a little bit more into culture and what that is, but just talk about. I think cultural transmission is the central, the kind of the the nodal point where you can start to peel stuff apart, right? So um, you look at the means by which culture is transmitted, and you look at the the ideology. The ideology, well, ideology, of course, the, the origin of that, or you could say just the. Uh, the development of that, right, over time. So, so, so when we talk, I mean, yeah, uh, we talk about popular music and stuff. It's, it's, it's. I mean, to be honest, it's a lot easier than some of the. You know, when I was living with a, a tribe and you know in the Himalayas and stuff and trying to f- learn their language and understand, you know, they don't have a written, you know, it's a, a, a totally oral culture and trying to understand their means of cultural transmission, even though it's a small scale. I, I find that to be more difficult, so to speak, than examining the nodal points of our culture exactly because the the transmission points um, are are much more apparent right so um, just to get to give some uh, con- concretize that a little bit more if first of all you know I, I, we talked about the, we have this development of what's known as you know the mass culture right so we have not only do we have a a huge shift in human consciousness right i mean the tele the, the the visual image the moving picture you know recorded sound um radio um in that that is that is a shift of the brain i mean that is a transformation of the mind itself uh that you know because your mind has to adapt to this entirely new world right so for you know however many you know, tens of thousands of years human beings have been around in the world. We never had, you know, television screens. We never had, um, you know, radio or whatever. And then, and then you go a little bit further and you look at vinyl culture. So you have to buy this record and you actually have to be careful with the record and clean your needle. And it's sort of a, and it's a larger, you know, physical, it's a part of material culture. Now we have, the MP3, which is just this, you know, this reduced, you know, using psychoacoustics, you know, you're reducing the sampling rate. So even though the whole music is in there, it sounds like it's still there, right? And then, mm-hmm. so you go from that to the CD. So you have this almost virtualization of culture where it's no longer grounded anywhere. And so you have that, that's one aspect, right? So the culture is kind of floating, um, you know, the, the floating signifier, right? You have the symbols are, are no longer moored to a particular Reality, right? They're not the, the symbolic reference point is not linked to something in your actual experience. It's linked to something sort of in a virtual or artificial experience, and so that's sort of the the ground or the I mean I'd say the kind of modern environment. But if you know, like I said, if you look at the nodal points, if you look at okay, how is this disseminated? How did this particular uh, thing arise? You know how how who was behind it? You can specifically find that out. You can look at it. What what was this linked to? What did this take place with at that particular milieu? So, 
if um, you know the Princeton Radio Project is an example of where they studied the combined aspects of mass culture, right? So really, by the you know late '30s, you have all sort of the basic uh, the basic tools to construct this entirely uh, top-down artificial cultural world um, that people experience. And because of the way you know people are, they're going to still going to experience that in the way that you know we have for millennium. In that this is our natural cultural environment. So, um, and in the uh, dissemination, the transmission, um, when you lose the sort of organic quality. An example is jazz. Right, jazz used to be taught uh, where I'm at in Columbus, Ohio, as like this really nice. Uh, we used to have you know one of these very old jazz scenes and so I used to hang out with some of these older musicians and, and you would you didn't go to college to learn jazz right you'd learn you'd, you'd play on the bandstand you'd meet with some of these people they'd show you some things but you'd also spend time with them right and you would you would imbibe it uh, sort of this organic way and now you want to learn jazz I mean you know it's still difficult but you'll go to a university and it's now become part of the university curriculum it's no longer linked to this Milieu. It's not even really linked to our contemporary milieu at all. It's sort of another floating signifier. It's another thing that's no longer really connected with the, all the other aspects, you know, of, of the society. It's become sort of this historicized um, pursuit, and you learn all this, the licks, and then you can play jazz. Um, I mean, obviously, that's not as is is uh, uh, dire, so to speak, as other as other elements. But I mean, when I mean. This is, um, you know, Adorno says television is a medium of undreamed of psychological control, right? And so, Prince of Raider Project—they're very distinctly talking about how how people perceive this, how to how these different media art forms are combined. They use like Lacanian uh, kind of post Freudian guy, and you know, this idea of the inner the inner screen. You know, you, you create you listen to a piece of media in your mind you identify with that. You, you create this identity and there's sort of this uh, virtual perceptual screen that takes place in the subconscious mind that, that starts to color and infiltrate all of all of one's perceptions, right? Mm-hmm. So so in that sense um, you know the uh, the you know it's it's a, it's easier to see. I mean, it's it doesn't make it any less troubling. Um, you know, kind of pulling pulling back the pages of this. But um, I think in one way, it's it's more we have an advantage in that um, the internet is an example of where you have a you know a uh, means of cultural transmission that that has flipped the game up right so this internet like even just doing being able to do podcasts being able to access a lot of information well you can get a lot of spurious stuff and i i think it's better to have actual physical books whenever you can but i mean still the internet has kind of opened things up again and, and sort of decentralized um the the cultural sort of production uh matrix but um i mean you know I mean, the thing is that i mean we just hope that people can see that that it's it's you know it's much more apparent if you're you know if you're an Az- Aztec and you know and you see the side the guy's heart getting cut out for the the, the blood god you know or whatever and you're offering the guy's heart to the the deity and you live in that and that's all you know it's much harder to break out of that culture than it is to break out of our our uh, contemporary um, world because again not only I think there's a degree of overplaying. 
the amount of manipulation, but also the, um, you know, I, I think for people that, I think there's a lot of people that are completely just following along on the, uh, on the, the treadmill, wherever that's leading. But I think that just because it's gotten so drastic and it, and it changes so fast that anybody with sort of a different take is going to start to say, Hey, wait, this is, this is a little bit odd. And then, you know, once you could pull back the, uh, pull back the covers and you can kind of find out, uh, what's, what's occurring. Yeah, you bring up the Princeton uh, Research Project. It's also, I, I think it's also known as the Radio Research Project. Uh, yeah, yeah, Radio. Yeah, and that was funded by the, it's like 1937, it says it's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, people on the uh, on the panel was uh, Paul Lazarfeld, Theodore Adorno, uh, Hadley uh, Cantrell, Gordon Alport, Frank Stanton. Uh, yeah, it, and, and yeah, there's like uh, psychologists like Gordon Alport worked for uh, Tavistock Institute, and um, yeah, they also studied the War of the Worlds uh, radio broadcast in 1938, which was that 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 I mean, from what I've looked into that, that was no doubt a, a test, or it was done on done intentionally to to gauge the effects of that sort of thing on uh, on the population. And uh, so, so I, so I guess the, the kind of uh, maybe the uh, goal would, would kind of kind of uh, quantify, I guess, the uh, taste of the of the public, so that they can be better uh, manipulated or, or or adhered to on one level, where you know they're they're. They're developing some t- tools to uh, assess how effective a certain uh, uh, me- media may be or may not be, and uh, then kind of work off of that. I mean, would that be kind of a would that be a correct assessment of that? You think? Well, I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, what you have, you know, is that, and these and other. Um, I mean, because it had many, many sub projects and stuff like that. I mean. The whole thing was understanding sort of the, the this new mass mind, you know, the mass media right. in this this thing. And so, you know, and, 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 you know, you're really looking at, I mean, you have all different people. You have Burris Meyer um, who looked at, you know, bioenergetics of music, which is a whole other pretty interesting topic. And, and he did a lot with Muzak Corporation, the idea of the subliminal manipulation of arousal response states, you know, by changing the music people would hear, you get people to work longer, you know, during the day. Uh, but Burris Meyer also, you know, looked at uh, creating mass hysteria through light, sound, and music. You know, he was, he was actually involved in theater production and stuff, too. But he, uh, so he, and he was kind of one of the more... Uh, you know, gung-ho, uh, you know, behaviorist, like, okay, we can completely control people through this. And so he got, he got, uh, let go from the program, but then he ended up, um, he ended up getting hired by naval intelligence. So, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but yes, yeah, so, so I mean, and this is, I mean, I, you know, I don't necessarily, I'm not, you know, necessarily making, I, I'm not, uh, I'd say I'm not trying to generalize per se that, you know, I'm going to claim, that all of these things, you know, are completely manipulated, um, you know, because I, you know, I think that's, you know, I, I think that has, argument has a lot of merit. It just, it takes, to really pull that stuff apart, it takes a huge amount of uh, research. Um, but the, uh, but I mean, the fact is that, uh, 
you know, they were working on this, and then you can look and see particular combinations. Um, and and I, I got into this a bit later when I was looking at the occult aspects of music, and you start seeing all this, you start seeing these events that are going, and they're all even related on specific dates, going over, you know, even decades that are all interconnected um, with you know, with, you know, they're all self-referential and they're also sort of pushing or fulfilling this other agenda, you know. So there, there's certainly a lot of that. I mean, it certainly it has, I mean, it's been studied inside and out. Um, and there's like tons of studies, for example, music videos, images and music videos. What does that do to people? And there's lots of studies, you know, images of violence and, you know, and drug use and all this stuff and, and how that affects people. And, you know, MTV, I mean, these people, um, if you look at their little trailer things, they I remember seeing one where they show someone's, like, brain with all these, like, you know, suckers attached to it, like sucking out their brain and putting in a new brain, which is <laughs> which is pretty much what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, and on the other hand, too, if you look at these people, if you look at Staten, who also was uh, with the Rand Corporation and was, you know, president of CBS, he was a major, major person in, in television broadcasting. These people are all together. You have all these heads of industry. You have these psychologists. You have these military um, intelligence people and, and stuff like that, that, um, that, you know, they're working together. So it certainly would, would lend one to the conclusion that... Um, that that this is you know being um, you know uh, instigated and then, you know and then of course you have to look at the uh, the economic aspects you have to look at you know how things are you know record industry but then you look obviously you control the nodal point right if you control the radio if you control if you control certain entry points or you control important people in charge of organizations then you can control many many other people and then if you have like say a, a particular rock icon just by you know the hero worship, and I think as John mentioned, or was it you? You know the idea it's replacing the, the parental figure, the uh, traditional authority figure is being replaced. Uh, then you um, then you have a really uh, very powerful um, uh, potential matrices. You know of of just uh, doing that. But the fact is, you know, I mean, people have. I mean, I think everybody most people will have a sense that something is wrong or they may feel uneasy or they may start to see little little things here and there if they're if they're aware of it and instead of you know taking Prozac if they decide to you know become a little proactive and figure out what's happening then I think that a lot of this stuff can be um, dissolved um, pretty rapidly at least at least you know with the individuals so I think that's that, that you know I think this the mass the, the generations this has been done, I think it's starting. I think there are some resiliency in, in humanity itself that will kind of um, work as a counterbalance to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so. I, I, I think so, too. Um, yeah, there, you know, the, the, this is common th- thread that this throughout, you know, music kind of in general, whether it be rock music, hip hop music, or stuff like that. It, you know, like, one common thing, of course, is like the glorification of uh, drug use, and, uh, and then promiscuity. Of course, is a it has always been sort of a major theme uh, in this type of music. Uh, there's like one one notable exception, and me and John have talked about this before. With the uh, on the in the punk rock scene, there was uh, what was called the straight edge movement. Are you familiar with that? Oh, of course, yeah. 
Like, what do you what do you make of that? I that's that's something that really stands out as something that's it's like counter to the trend in a in a pretty uh, direct way. And then, uh, but then you know, we we brought up too that uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, noteworthy things about punk rock and how you know how, and all of its uh, connections to uh, uh, for all the world appearing that it's 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 some sort of a manipulated movement in and of itself. Yeah, you know, I mean, I am. Um, that's one of those things where you know, because I was. You know, I was uh, playing in, like, in a punk band, playing in clubs when I was 16, you know, and stuff like that. So I was kind of, you know, this is obviously I wasn't in the 70s, but, you know, in the kind of, um, you know, early 90s, uh, you know, whatever, late 80s in that. So, and um, and it, to me at the time, it seemed pretty organic, uh, but... I mean, I do remember, you know, I, I was, I was kind of, a, you know, I was pretty young, so I wasn't, you know, I remember they had, you had the skinheads, you know... And with that song, Nazi punks, fuck off. I don't know if you have swear. <laughs> and I remember this night, cool. and they had the axes on their hands. And I, I was, I wasn't. <laughs> so, but I mean, that's you know, that's kind of, yeah, it's a counter movement within that. I mean, I can't really say per se what that meant. I mean, that that may have been an organic outgrowth. It may be also uh, a, a greater degree of just creating internal. Fragmentation. I mean, I, like I said, I don't. I, I knew people that were straight edge, and you know, I, I, they seemed a little bit fanatical about it, which you know was probably cool. But like I said, I I just have sort of direct experience just for a couple of years of that. But I mean, I you know, I talked with Jan a little bit about this. Um, you know, the G.G. Allen guy who really just disturbed me immensely because mm-hmm. I heard of him, and then you know, this whole idea of do without world, and then he you know he ends up. Yeah, if you're familiar with him or not? Well, I went up after I listened to that uh, interview that you had with Jan. I I looked him up, and um, I, I think I heard him before, but I, I never like looked into him. Yeah, so it, it, it I, I watched uh, part of a, a documentary on on him. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that, yeah, it's pretty. You know, I mean that that's that's see, that's where that's that's where the kind of punk rock can lead. You know, and there's I mean I know people you know who didn't get out of it, and, and you know I, I don't know where they are now, but I, I remember. You know, I, I, you know, you know, whatever. I moved away, came back. I saw people. Some of these people really, you know, I, I, I know people I knew personally really kind of started, you know, getting more and more into, you know, un, unhealthy activities, shall we say, you know, uh, as an outgrowth of, the, of that scene, you know. So there, I mean, certainly not everybody, but I, I do, you know, there was like you got like heroin started coming in, all kinds of stuff, um, and so there's, you know, there's. There's that, um, and then even the Sex Pistols, um, and um, you know they, they were, you know, I mean this the sex, you know, the boutique um, stuff like that. So the Sex Pistols, you know, certainly were, you know, certainly promoted, and that's it is like a British invasion, and you know, and I, I have to do more research, but you can see the punk as being a British invasion, where you know it's like that dialectical thing where you, well, not you know the sort of the I call the static dialectic, so to speak. It's not really you know, sort of, you know, the Hegelian dialectic, which sometimes, you know, it's people kind of, I think, misunderstand to a certain extent. But the way I look at it is, you know, you're creating, you have, you know, you, you have the 60s movement, you know, you, you fragment the 60s of Altamont, then you have all these splinter movements, and you have kind of back to tradition, then you have the, the blo- then you have the bloated excess of corporate rock, and then you have the invasion of punk, which is suddenly refreshing, and, and you know, all this other stuff, and it's just back to the roots, and, you know, and, and you can see that as being a natural reaction, but it is, it, to a certain extent, one could posit that it is channeled um, into this, 
this thing. And in the punk scene, I mean, you know, very, very, I mean, there was a lot of human wreckage, you know, in the early 70s. And even in the punk scene, I mean, you just, we can probably go down a list of many, many punk artists who were just really troubled and highly self-destructive people. And so, and that, you know, that's another example. Instead of, you know, why not try a different form of music or why not rethink music? No, let's, let's go down, let's go down another level. So we're even reducing, you know, the whatever musical value you find in classic rock and just, I mean, you know, they say like, you know, I'm not, I'm nothing against punk per se, but I'm just saying if you look at it as sort of a planning phase, uh, planning implementation strategy, you know, you could see that that would make sense. You offer this, this, um, this, uh, you know, counteraction against, you know, disco and, you know, whatever. Um, that that actually ends up being more destructive, and that's that's something you find, you know, this rebellion that ends up, you know, you end up not only not rebelling, but you end up, you know, worse off than you were before you started. Um, but that being said, as as a caveat or a um, as a uh, uh, what do you call it? I forget what you call it. As a disclosure, full disclosure. I mean, when I. You know, when I was playing punk and, you know, sneak climbing out of the bedroom window and going to a rock club, I mean, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. It seemed really exciting and just, you know, it was like, you know, I, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't per se, you know, perceive it in, 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 in negative light, you know, when I was involved in it. So I, I, I thought it was really enjoyable and whatever. And I, I thought, you know, and, you know, but on the, you know, on the other hand, you know, that if you look at, the larger implications of it, it it's you know you're doing the British invasion again right and and just um, one thing just to wrap up here real quick is that there are another way to tell the note I thought about the nodal points of culture right if you look at rock suppose in 1959 you have these all the major rock stars either dead in jail um, you know for marrying their 14 year old cousin or or you know you know you have the you know plane crash Elvis and the army so basically they shut down rock 1959 boom it's shut down right mm-hmm. uh, and then and then uh, you have you know this incredibly syrupy bubblegum you know stuff you know Pat Boone and and then suddenly then you have the Beatles wow right you know right out you know the Kennedy assassination and you have the Beatles so it's almost like you have the shock and then you have this this other thing but what what's a little bit telling about that is that there was a whole indigenous American rock scene so rock did not die there was a lot of great rock bands that were still playing but they didn't have any exposure they were playing in their garages that's where the term garage bands came from because they couldn't get proper record contracts they were completely ignored and marginalized absolutely marginalized by the recording industry and then suddenly rock is is brought back by the Beatles so you see this kind of evolution of, of, a, of a naturally evolving genre and then suddenly the the vector point the transmission point um, is blocked right you have they can't get record contracts and so they you know they just uh, it fizzles out and and so that's that's sort of a telling sign, right? When you see some of these uh, music styles that kind of disappeared, um, and, and that that sort of lends one to the, the possibility that um, you know that that that's uh, that's being done deliberately. And then the idea of you know you have mass psychology, so you do look you can you can engage in psychological. Uh, processes with a large group just as you would with an individual. I mean, things are going to be different, but just like you have shocks, you have moments of respite, you know, you have, you have to have, you know, you can look, you can certainly look, uh, you know, look at this being these, uh, 
these things, sort of traumas, and then uh, then you have you know you know like the the artificial boredom of the 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 lull of the early '60s, you know, mm-hmm. where you're suppressing this indigenous rock, and you know, force feeding, you know. You know, in, uh, was it itty bitty teeny weeny polka dot bikini or whatever? You know, and then um, and then you're almost like building up the pressure, and all oh, the Beatles are here, boom. And, and so, you know, who knows? I mean, that's that certainly it, it would make sense if you're doing that. To, you know, on, on looking at it from the top down, and certainly people in the Prince of Raider project, you know, and and others, you know, were in a position to to make decisions like that to make things like that happen. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, you listen to the Beatles like really early stuff and it sounds like, you know, American rockabilly and that's all this heavily uh American rockabilly influences in their in their music. And then when they come over here, it's like it's almost like they you know, well, something happened in transit where they have something entirely different altogether. And uh so when people say that uh oh, you know, Theodore Adorno had you know, a hand in shaping the Beatles' music and 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 making the Beatles sound. Uh, that that uh, sort of makes sense in that context, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think you know. I mean, I would say, yeah, I would say it's. I would highly doubt that Adorno had anything to do with um, the Beatles' music, just because a he hated popular music. He even hated tonality. Right? He was a, the total enemy of. He was a very uh, intense uh, kind of you know post-Marxist, late Marxist kind of person who just everything was the commodity spe- spectacle, commodification, atomization of listeners. So a lot of his work was actually criticizing popular music culture. But he, he promoted, you know, like Schoenberg, like this totally mathematically derived, you know, completely dissonant uh, music. I mean, I used to like 12-tone music, but it is, it's certainly s- extremely dissonant and it actually helped to kill the popular audience for classical music so I mean I, I don't I, I would I would say I mean unless I saw a direct document and even the way he writes he's extremely like just you know very you know very convoluted kind of he just keeps just rambles on and on about uh, you know feti- commodity fetishes and everything I, I you know I, but on the other hand I mean the Beatles um, you look um, I mean that's something. I mean, that I mean, they were they were pretty skilled musicians. I mean, they they came out of the skiffle movement. You have the skiffle skiffle movement in England, which sort of had uh, sort of an obscure one off genre in America. But they had stuff where they were playing songs with more complex chord progressions, right? So they mm-hmm. skiffle did they did some uh, you know old kind of folk songs. They did some kind of jazz songs, you know, and I, I, I do have a demo of the Beatles where they're doing, you know, they did do some, like, jazz covers, right? So they, they did have some, uh, you know, they did have sort of a higher degree of, uh, of uh, accomplishment than the average, um, you know, average guy, you know, just playing, you know, three chords with, um, you know, in, in, the, in the rockabilly thing. But, yeah, no, I mean, and that, that's a whole other, you know, the Beatles, what I, you know, that's, and I mean, summarize. I mean, I certainly just noticing, um, which I think I will bring this to light. They, there are some of their songs that are actually have embedded hypnotic commands, as well as having certain types of dissonance and manipulation of consciousness through music mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that are going on there in some of their songs that I did kind of an analysis of, um, and and so 
And then you look at, uh, you know, the, the whole thing with, you know, their, their Crowley, the, how they got in the Crowley that, you know, John Lennon did, you know, paid $60,000 to do some kind of black magic ritual in, in the rainforest. I'm not saying it involved the human sacrifice, but it was a very expensive ritual. And he, he was a big booster of, of Crowley and they have all these other, um, you know, things of showing sort of this, um, Sort of a, a, a misanthropy, but certainly, well, a great hatred of uh, Christianity and all this stuff. But also, you know, you, you do see that they um, that it is possible that there's something much more darker going on with the Beatles music. But I, I think that definitely ties into you kind of have to get into this uh, kind of a cult, a cult realm, secret societies connected with. Um, you know, this, this goes all the way back. This this word gets kind of hairy, but you can look at um, a number of different writers and um, even this, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Rob Lay is an example. You can look at um, uh, other, um, you know, al- al- alchemy, alchemical texts and, and, you know, their connection with all these uh, agendas that were being fulfilled right through the 60s um, and this idea of um, bringing heaven to earth as above so below um, but but embracing defilement embracing you know all these other things you, you, you find this this thread kind of running through uh, a number of um, various uh, groups uh, that are a lot of times you know again are Initiatory societies, uh, and a lot of times they do have very prominent members of society in them. An example, of course, Illuminati is kind of the generic one, but there's there's many many other um, groups like that. That that so there's there's kind of this uh, subterranean current that's definitely tied in uh, with uh, this idea. It's sort of a Renaissance idea of you know man becomes God, man is superior to God, um, and that connects sort of this Luciferian. Ideal that is, you know, but at the same time, it's sort of okay, you know. I mean, I, you know, it doesn't necessarily sound bad. Oh, man is God. Okay, it sounds pretty cool. I'd like to be God, but this is also connected with a lot of these utopian thinkers uh, who are talking about this totally regulated society, um, you know, this, you know, all these other, um, you know, sort of uh, Francis Bacon, many other writers, you know, who are envisioning this kind of clockwork society were also involved in these. Um, you know, kind of secret uh, esoteric societies. Um, and so the aim of science, you know, genetically modified food is not that different from the aim of, uh, of a um, practicing black magician, you know, because you're, you're basically it's the same thing, right? The idea is to create artificial life. Uh, and this then this ties into the whole uh, transhumanism stuff. And that's, yeah, we probably won't be able to go that much more into that. But that that's kind of where I, I started... Um, yeah, pulling the Beatles threads apart, looking at like the art director, the guy that designed Sergeant Pepper's cover, and he's linked with uh, the um, you know some uh, mob guys, uh, English British mob guys who are connected with the whole pedophilia scandal and all this stuff. So there's some there's some other stuff there, but um, you know it, you know until I guess I, I don't want to speculate too much on that, but um, but you know but basically needless to say I I think that, that you know. Um, you know, I, 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 I resisted coming to any conclusion because I, I do, I mean, at least from a musical standpoint, the, the Beatles are very accomplished uh, musicians or their producers are. But, you know, started to see in John Lennon's lyrics the, this, um, you know, learned helplessness states being sort of implemented very subtly, looking at hypnotic language um, and stuff like that. And then you think, whoa, this is not quite... 
as it seems, and then if someone is you know just taking a massive amount of LSD, that's gonna that's gonna like almost that could even rewrite their subconscious mind or portions of it, you know, so it has a very powerful effect. When you look at it in the context of, you know, people taking, you know, uh, hallucinogenic drugs and the effect of the music then, it's it's massively amplified, you know. Yeah, and listening to the same record over and over and over and over, and, uh, yeah, people are into that where, you know, they get a, a favorite uh, album or a favorite song and they, they listen to it uh, just high... high at high repetition, just, you know. Uh. Yeah, well, that's, uh, actually, I do have to go here, but just as the last thing, yeah, that's one of the things Princeton Radio Project talked, uh, they discovered was that this repetition, right, if you repeat something enough, it becomes popular. People will start to like it. They'll get a familiarity with it. So even if they don't like it initially, just because of that repetition, you create trends by just re- repetition, right? And that repetition then is reinforced. So you actually, by, by the repetition, you create the, not only the desire for more repetition, but also uh, sort of a, um, a false popularity because it, it becomes it becomes part of the subconscious cultural background that is our natural inclination to kind of uh, you know to connect with you know. Yeah, well, I mean, on, on one level too, it's just a matter of making it uh, familiar. You know, once you hear it enough times, you know, it becomes familiar. Then it becomes, you know, normalized, and then it then it gets, you know, social capital or social confirmation, and uh, then then that's yeah. I could see how that it's just those those criteria could uh, make something that you know was un, unheard of or undesirable all of a sudden popular and desirable, and just just, just the fact that it's introduced and uh, and and becomes familiar to people. Yeah, but also, and it does also have the effect, the subconscious effect, right? So it becomes, it starts to, um, you know, operate subconsciously. It's almost like you get, is it, as it becomes the familiarity, right? Sort of, it becomes this ingrained almost, uh, subconscious recognition. Um, and yeah, and then that, that, that's where, you know, you, you see, I mean, and this, you know, it's, it's actually a huge topic, right? Because then, then we go into, just start looking at a gangster rap, right? You have this, that's another, that genre was, com- I mean, I actually was a little bit, in, I've done some, you know, hip-hop work and been involved. And I remember um, early 90s, like, just some amazing, like, really uplifting rap and just amazing creativity going on. And suddenly, you got this gangster rap, and it's just shoved down everyone's and it was shoved down everyone's throat i mean and these are if you listen to these songs i mean they are incredibly brutal violent i mean they have this you know they have this uh you know this worldview that's just you know i mean it's just uh, i don't know it's like the most animalistic you know level you could possibly live on and but then yet is yet it's still going it's still popular and and that's i think the function of that is and a lot of times people don't even hear the lyrics but then, and, and all the other points you mentioned too are there in that you have group cohesiveness, you have this, uh, you know, cultural capital, so to speak. Oh, I like this. Oh, I like this too. You know, whatever. But at the same time, you have, um, I mean, I, and I do think that, you know, you look at Plato, if you look, I was reading Lao Tzu, you know, writing about music, some of these other, you know, Chinese thinkers, they, they really describe the state, the political, you know, structure being connected with music. And, and, you know, we're talking about people that are running empires. There must be, I would assume, there's some validity to that. You know, I mean, they, they, you know, when they would go and reinforce the tuning changes or whatever, they're, you know, people that are immensely powerful aren't going to do that unless they, they, they've seen some kind of demonstrable, you know, empirical result from that, you know. But, uh, 
Yeah, like making the four the four forty the standard tuning instead of uh, what is it four thirty two and and all of that. That uh, yeah, you guys went into that. Um, uh, that that's another interesting subject. Yeah, I just uh, yeah. Well, there's a lot to say on this topic, but uh, uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, coming on here with us, uh, Hans and. Uh, uh, yeah, if we could do it again, that that'd be cool, and we could uh, maybe uh, flesh out some of this other uh, subjects that we're, you know, just able to you know bring up, and then you know, uh, it's it's just a wide sweeping area, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fun, and I, you know, even just one, just take one thing and just kind of go into it in, in a lot of detail. But yeah, I really enjoyed it, and uh, so I'll probably look for when are you guys gonna have this online. Uh, I'll probably out up today sometime. Uh, I'll, I'll try to get up probably within the next couple of hours. Oh, great! great. And uh, I'll send you. Uh, can I just send you a link through Skype? Would that be okay? That's perfect. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Is there anything you want to uh, put out there before uh, we uh, wrap it up here? Or do you, uh, yeah, I just say you know I, mean, I have my my website hansutter.com. It's it's not really. I have, it, I have to update it. It's primarily just I use it for uh, booking sitar concerts, but <laughs> but I do have some other websites, uh, and hopefully people will look. I, I got a couple books that are almost done here, so um, look for the books, and I have some CDs uh, available like on Amazon. There's a group melodic intersect. We've got uh, three albums out, and I think I think the, um, the new one especially is pretty good. So if people want to check out some of that music, it'd be great. And uh, I guess that'll do it. And I uh, hope everyone has a whoever's listening has a great day and just goes out and kicks ass <laughs> well, one more question is is your music in 432 or is it 440 um you know some is in 432 some isn't i mean i had tracks uh some of the stuff i have people doing it remotely um i mean this depends i mean i i'm uh you know one of the issues is that you have um you know um, i'm dealing with some I'm, I'm doing production work so i get people sending me tracks or then if um so oh yeah yeah, yeah but a lot of the times they mean most indie music was always in uh 432 but now people are kind of doing a 440 so there's a guy in india that sent me like some tracks that i had to add stuff to it and he did it in 440 so i'm not gonna retune it so i mean i i think that you know i mean that's just the the a440 a a32 i mean i think that's something where it, that's kind of a nebulous subject it's also very concrete but i think that ties into what I was alluding to, talking about the zeitgeist or this much broader sort of spectra that I, I haven't necessarily, uh, you know, been able to completely um, concretize. I'm just, I'm just kind of starting to notice this thing, right? So you look at even, you know, the effects of these things that are having, and even is, you know, even changing, you know, other aspects of society. But it certainly would make sense, and that, that I think that the, the real uh, the real where, the way that can be linked is if you look at uh, the use of numerology, use of frequencies. You look at the this idea, um, you know, of so to speak, the transhumanism, Luciferian, uh, you know, satanic uh, aspects, or just you know, te- technocratic, uh, scientific control grid. This idea of separating from the natural world, separating from life. You know, blocking your natural experiences, blocking your experience of nature, and that that would certainly tie in with those agendas, um, especially even given the numerology of A440 and the kind of uh, ratios it makes. But I would say that A440 music, I mean, that's, I mean, 
you know, if you know, once you know, once the wreckage is cleared and we sort of are able to rebuild our own culture, then it, you know, I think changing back to a four thirteen would be great. Uh, you know, on, on a mass scale, but I think that it's just it, it may even just have numerological or occult resonance and significance. I mean, it, and it does have. I think it, it does certainly have an effect. Um, I don't think the a four forty is harmful per se. I do think, though, it is it is a little more unnatural. It's a little more aggressive, right? It's a little more aggressive, and it's a little bit more removed, sort of, so to speak, from the the uh, natural stream. And that's kind of a weird thing. I mean, I notice when I'm playing, I'm not as driven to you know play fast runs or whatever when I'm in four uh, four thirty two. It just when the music calls for it. A four forty, you know, it's like that's what I've noticed about rock. So I'm kind of going on here a bit but that's one of the things like when I went to India I started hearing this and there there is some you know it has very aggressive mechanistic feeling in some of the popular music uh, that that really is that's um, you know that's even you know more so even than the uh social cultural aspects you know that that sort of you know entraining you sort of with this uh, global mechanization process as well as sort of um, valencing negative emotions and sort of cutting off much more subtle uh, perceptual abilities that people have, right? So it's sort of, you know, more and more almost locking people into these, you know, cubes, metallic cubes, you know, completely cut off from the natural world. And I think that's that can be, you know, seen as, um, you know, part of that uh, process and whether or not that's just a, you know, a natural outgrowth of human evolution or whether that's kind of being engineered for us is... Um, <laughs> it's hard to say, but maybe not. But yeah, so I guess yeah. I think that'll just yeah. I'll just uh, wrap it up there. Then that's my my final um, uh, uh, soundbite. So huh. all right, man. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you have a good rest of the week. And uh, ho- hopefully, we uh, get back in contact with you again, and we'll uh, continue. Sounds good. Excellent. Yeah, I had a great time. We'll, we'll take care, Chris. Okay. Have a good one.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.